Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Eliza Wilson. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as a part of the TEEJ FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll talk to Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska about Virginia politics. Plus, we'll hear an interview with Bina Rajavendran. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Giles Morris, he's the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Emily Hayes and Charlotte Woods, both news reporters at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Well, it's that time of the year again for the TomTom Fest, which is running from April 8th to April 14th. And today on Soundboard, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the events and conferences that happened this last week and how they relate back to issues regarding Charlottesville. So, Giles, you participated in the Civic Innovations Conference. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, the Civic Innovation Conference was one of six TomTom conferences running concurrent throughout the week. Yesterday was the Civic Innovation Conference along with the Renewable Energy Conference, which Charlotte covered. Emily was covering some stories at the Civic Innovation Conference, and I was on two panels yesterday, one on race and the media, and another one on open data and engagement with citizens. Um, so it's been, you know, uh, as usual with TomTom, way too many things going on all at once to get to everything or to even know really what's happening or to take it all in. But, you know, we wanted to do our part at Charlottesville tomorrow, particularly representing ourselves in the civic innovation sphere and then covering the stuff closest to our beats. So Charlotte was writing about some climate issues and, and connecting them to local stuff, and Emily was covering her beat, affordable housing, and there were some really interesting programs there. Charlotte, could you talk a little bit about the Renewable Energy Conference that you attended? Yes. So a former Florida congressman, uh, Carlos Corbello, he came to talk about his efforts to bring more bipartisan support to climate change in addressing the issue. Um, he's patroned legislation that would have taxed carbon. And he really spoke a lot about how more and more Republicans have been uh, shifting from their status quo of denying climate change as an issue they should focus on to starting to embrace it and have constructive solutions-based conversations. He established a caucus within Congress that has both Republicans and Democrats on board. Yeah, so he really spoke about those efforts. And even though he was unseated in the most recent midterm elections last fall, he's really hopeful going forward with the 116th Congress and the one coming after that. He thinks especially the 117th Congress could actually start to pass more climate change legislation. And I think that was sponsored by Apex Energy, and it just kind of represents this like growing business sector in Charlottesville around green energy with SunTribe Solar and a bunch of other solar companies, Apex, um, which does wind energy, you know, Charlottesville Climate Collaborative, which is organizing a nonprofit to really raise this attention at a time when the county has declared that that's its number one priority. And I think all of us are recognizing there has to be this alignment between climate change and equity issues uh, so that climate change issues aren't the provenance of sort of um, privileged people who want to keep the country nice. They're part of everything we think about when we think about making a, a better city, a better county community. And Charlotte, you mentioned earlier that Kubera also spoke a little bit about youth's interest in renewable energy. And youths were a big part of the TomTom Tom Fest, and there was a whole student innovation conference that you attended. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, Corbello, he did mention that 
new young voters speaking out on issues have definitely had an impact and an influence on legislators. But the Youth Innovation Conference, um, the day that I went, it was an all-day event. Schools from around the county and the city attended and participated. There were pitches on different um, innovative ideas like ways to improve the middle school experience, enhance learning, student engagement. There were also uh, there was also an innovative pitch session from students who had ideas for startups and apps. And uh, the keynote. The keynote speaker was actually Parkland survivor and, and March for Our Lives organizer, Jacqueline Corin. Um, she also participated in a discussion panel. And then she and local activist, Diana Bryant, participated as judges in a panel to, to uh, choose a winning pitch. And the pitch that won was called Sleek Safety. It's an app that would allow you to discreetly contact friends or family members if you're on a date and you feel unsafe. Uh, one of the ideas was designing it to look like a calculator app on your phone. And it was hosted by uh, UVA Curry School and reInvent Ed. So the conference that I covered was about that question. I think a lot of people have been wondering, which is, what is the role of universities in affordable housing? The guest was Stelfani Williams, a vice president at Duke for Durham Affairs. And she joined in t 2018, but the department had been around for about 10 years before that. Um, it's really interesting, and I saw a bunch of people in the audience who are focused on affordable housing locally, especially in this regional housing partnership that just started up in the fall. Um, this includes a partnership between the city, the county, the university, and some surrounding counties. Um, so that's, you know, I think it's an open question. And the university has said that affordable housing is one of their top priorities for uh, improving the relationship between the community and the university. Um, so I was really curious what she was gonna say. She said that the to this point, the department and the university have sort of been behind the scenes, like a behind the scenes kind of investor in projects that are led by other people. One example of the way they did that is rather than buying land in downtown Durham, they became, they were anchor tenants in downtown Durham. So there's this whole campus off of campus, and it leaves the property on the books to increase taxes for the locality. They're switching a little bit in their approach, um, doing more communication. I think this came partially out of the, the light rail project that got um, sort of had some problems at the last minute, and it isn't going to happen in the research triangle. One of the takeaways for me is just like a lot of other cities are having the same problems we're having. So mm -hmm. Durham is itself in a real self-examination around race and equity and um, affordable housing is one of the front lines of that conversation in Durham. It's very mm -hmm. similar to what's yeah. going on in Charlottesville. Something she said was that in the past the problem was there wasn't anybody in downtown Durham. It was just like empty. But now after all these investments and with recent trends, there's a huge problem with people being displaced. So they're thinking about switching from the neighborhoods right around Durham to having metrics for who are the vulnerable communities, more broadly the communities that maybe have been displaced from the downtown area. And it really dovetails with, like, I think Dana Matthews' opening remarks. Um, you know, she's uh, dean at the law school, came here two years ago to really spearhead some equity conversations uh, on behalf of the law school and is now driving... Uh, the Equity Institute uh, project at UVA, and she delivered the keynote for the civic innovation or the opening remarks. And I mean, she was just hammering on um, all you know racial inequality and equity issues and how innovation can 
move us past some of the things we think are unsolvable or that don't go together um, into more creative environments around solving these problems together. Um, so, and then to the Durham point, we had a, we hosted um, a conversation on open data and civic engagement models last night as part of the civic engagement co conference. And we had um, John Colleen up who was working for the city of Durham when they designed the Durham Compass, which is an open data portal designed at creating a sort of equity atlas type model for how you look at what's going on in neighborhoods and open those conversations up in neighborhoods. So I think it just showed again that cities are trying to deal with these problems in different ways. There aren't clear slam dunk solutions, but if you're not pretty flexible and pretty aggressive and if you don't make a really demonstrative commitment to solving them, uh, everybody just kicks the can down the street and you end up with a lot of anger in your community. And um, I think we all know that that status quo just isn't going to hack it anymore. So to the extent that TomTom instigated some of those conversations, that's great. I think TomTom um, is great because it provides us a little bit of a national thought leadership platform. Sometimes it feels a little bit scattered and that more of us should be in fewer of these conversations in a way that help us really matriculate them locally. But I was happy with, with, with uh, our experience in, in the panels and particularly with the Civic Innovation Conference and the support that UVA poured into it through their provost's office. Well, the university's role in affordable housing in Charlottesville is something we talk a lot about on Soundboard. And it's interesting that you guys got to hear a different town and university's perspective on that. It's always going to be the UVA's, the, you know, the gorilla, um, and they can, they can go a long way to fix these problems, and President Ryan is saying the right things and doing the right things, but that doesn't mean that universities um, move fast enough or with enough conviction or with enough money on the table to really alleviate problems. And I think in Charlottesville it's so clear that we don't have that much time to preserve our historically African-American neighborhoods. And I think Durham's feeling that same thing. You know, these things can all roll over in less than a decade. Unfortunately, we are out of time on this week's soundboard. But once again, thank you guys for coming in and talking about some of the interesting conferences you both attended and participated in in this year's TomTom Tom Fest, which is running until this Sunday, April 14th. So get out there and listen to some speakers or hear some music. Once again, that was Giles Morris. He's the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Emily Hayes and Charlotte Woods, both news reporters at Charlottesville Tomorrow. You can read the latest and find out more at seavilletomorrow.org. Thanks again, guys. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEEJ FM network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and TEEJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. We now turn to our regular correspondent on state news and politics, Peter Kalaska, talking with Nathan Moore. Well, Peter, the big news this week, around Charlottesville anyway, and really throughout the whole state of Virginia, is the basketball championship, NCAA, UVA won the whole thing. And so uh, sort of a redemption from last year when they lost in the first round. Take me through uh, the big story. Well, of course, 
<clears throat> better people than myself can can actually address the athletics of the Who's, who are, did very very well. Um, but it's but there's more of kind of a a political cultural aspect to the victory because it's redemptive. Uh, Charlottesville and UVA, you know, taken loosely together, have been through one problem after the other for a number of years, and I think that um, and, and and the fact that the um, the students in the town. Reacted very, um, you know, calmly to the victory, brought the city and the, and the college and university uh, at long last a lot of respect and attention. So it was a, it was a heart-stopping win. Uh, you know, again, like three games in a row where it was one in the last few seconds. There, um, the the celebrations were relatively polite here in Charlottesville. There, uh, there were. Yeah, I know. I mean, they they were. It's kind of surprising when you consider <clears throat> the history of. Um, you know, they had Easter's back in the 70s, and it was so wild they had to get rid of that. And they've had numerous problems with fraternities, and, and on it goes. And um, I know that in uh, Michigan State, when they won a championship a few years ago, they started a um, this kind of weird uh, ritual of burning couches. Right. And a Charlottesville, I think it was Toscana, Dave Toscana, he, I think he said this, but he said, oh, here, we're very polite. We only burn two couches. So. <laughs> but anyway, um, I do think just when you look, go through the list real quick of, sure. of bad stuff that the whole area has been through. The worst of all, the Unite the Right movement uh, of white nationalists uh, almost two years ago that resulted in three deaths. And um, it was really became a focal point of uh, racial politics and the rise of nationalism and fascism in the country. And so I think that the win by the UVA sounds corny, but really kind of takes maybe a turn in the right direction. I mean, undoubtedly, it's nice to have the positive news, right? But I, I have been sort of seeing a lot of these um, just loose commentary uh, reaction, kind of like, oh, we got the win, so... You know, that's all those problems before aren't aren't problems now, and I don't really know if that's if that's quite right. There's there's something. No, I agree with you. I mean, I don't mean to be that naive, but um, <laughs> I mean, but I, I'm just saying is that um, you know if things keep going the way they're going. I mean, I think in some ways, so um, you know, for the, everybody has to keep trying, etc., and do the right thing. And there are many problems that need to be resolved. But I think a couple of the things are really not the local area's fault. And one of the, I think, the Rolling Stone article. That was outside stuff coming and hitting Charlottesville unfairly. And um, Unite the Right, sort of the same thing, because very few of the people on the right side were from the local area. And I think local people properly stood up to um, counter-demonstrate. So I don't know. We'll see. Right. Well, let's shift gears. Style Weekly over there in Richmond has an interesting story uh, about how the FBI spied on a rather spied on a famed NAACP lawyer named Oliver Hill back in the 1940s and beyond. Take me through this particular news story they've uncovered. Correspondent Tom Nash is a very interesting story. First off, Oliver Hill, who was born I think in 1909, I think he died in 2007, was an African American uh, lawyer who was one of several instrumental in um, overturning segregation. And I think it's really important to note that um, if it's, you know, a lot of scholars think that when you're dealing with integration, that the really the yeoman's work was done by a quiet group of local lawyers, African American lawyers, who slogged through the courts year after year, decade after decade, trying to find a constitutional basis to end segregation. And Oliver Hill was one of them. But of course, there was enormous pushback. I mean, um, he was uh, what Style did is they found. They found several things. First, they found 
Hill was going to be appointed by John JFK, President Kennedy, in 1960 to be a part of the Federal Housing Administration. So the FBI investigated him and tried this, came in 100 pages of, 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 you know, investigation surveillance about him. And at other points in his career, the FBI got involved. And, for example, uh, during the start of World War II, Hill was um, six months away from being too old for the draft. And he ended up going to the Army anyway, but, you know, the FBI had the nerve to send an agent to interview him. Uh, about whether he was properly American enough. There were um, other, you know, issues I know related in the 60s, for example, when Hill um, was accused of standing outside of a Richmond area elementary school and trying to get, you know, people interested in the NAACP. He did this every Monday morning. And accusations, total falsers were spread that he was trying to get people there. It was a segregated school to sign over their mortgages to him. I don't know. Just, and this was all nonsense, and it was all investigated. And there was more too. Yeah. Like, and I mean, for example, the the state state delegates and 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 governors were, you know, kind of always trying to dig at him. Just at some point. At one point, he, he he worked in Roanoke for a while too as a lawyer, and supposedly there was some big issue whether he had skipped Roanoke with a client's money when he didn't. It was somebody else. And in another point, he was had to go before the General Assembly and fight there. The General Assembly at the time, which was uh, was trying to say that he should be disbarred because he was filing frivolous lawsuits, which you know is insane. And um, at another point at least one Democratic delegate was really urging him that he'd be more effective in the North or the West and not in the South, and that he just wasn't diplomatic enough. So, I mean, it's just the same thing happened to Martin Luther King Jr. and a lot of people in the civil rights movement, but this really takes it home to Virginia. Well, and you see this with the, with the change makers throughout history, really, with um, uh, a lot of uh, pushback from the, even the the force of the law, and in this case, J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, you know, fighting back uh, and and making life difficult for people who try to affect change. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But one thing that the style story says, which I found interesting, Hill was very cl- clever and careful never to publicly denounce J. Edgar Hoover, because and because when other civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King did, they immediately started wiretapping him. And that was the key. You criticize Hoover, and the taps go on. And so, you know, and they're all just trying to get any kind of, of dirt they can on him. And it's, I mean, I remember I was working as a journalist in the Soviet Union, and they, that's what they tried to do to us. I mean, to find anything that they could later use in their dirt file. And so, right. compromise. Right, right, right. Well, uh, in our last uh, story for the day here, I want to talk a little bit about Dominion because we can't have a news segment without talking about Dominion. <laughs> um, but this time it's actually something down in, in North Carolina. It's a Dominion subsidiary right. down in Durham. There was a gas well, blast. What happened was um, the, there was a contractor in downtown Durham, which is undergoing a renaissance, a lot of construction and uh, going on down there and renovating older buildings. And a contractor was drilling under a sidewalk. And that contractor apparently, this is apparently, hit a two-inch wide pipeline, natural gas pipeline, that was, you know, operated by a subsidiary of Dominion uh, here in, you know, Virginia Company. And it touched off a massive explosion. I think the, the latest is that it killed one person and injured 17. And people in downtown Durham had never 
been any, through anything like that. I mean, it's an extreme explosion, lots of black smoke. It looked like a tornado or a bomb had hit. And um, it doesn't appear that Dominion was in any way involved with this accident, but it raises another question. And that question is, if you have the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, now granted, Atlantic Coast Line is not going through the middle of any large town, but nevertheless, that pipeline's 42 inches wide, not two inches wide. So obviously, if something like that were to happen, and for whatever reason, you could be looking at a far greater catastrophic explosion. Most likely this would occur in the country somewhere, but, but nevertheless, I mean, it's just something to consider, that gas is a very potent potential killer yeah. in, in the wrong circumstances. Well, I mean, Dominion, of course, would say, they'd say, look, we've got a great safety record, uh, very occasional uh, problems have happened, we address them really quickly. Uh, you don't need to worry about that with the pipeline we're looking to build. What's, what's the response here? Well, the response is, yeah, but, but then again, you've had a number of leaks, and you, if you go out to the gas fields in, like the Marcellus Field in, in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, you've had a number of, of, of explosions and leaks. It's not uncommon. And, and gas does leak, and even, even in normal circumstances it leaks, and that's why you have the, the methane pollution and global warming. I mean, it's because it, it's a leaky kind of thing. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. Okay. All right. Once again, that was Peter Galaska talking with Nathan Moore. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. And now for WTJU's very own Lewis Raining speaking with Bina Raghavendran about her engagement reporting for Pro-Republica and her talks at the TomTom Fest. I'm speaking today with Bina Raghavendran, one of the featured speakers at the TomTom Summit 2019, Bina, as an engagement reporter for the local reporting network at ProPublica, there's a lot to unpack there for people who aren't familiar with ProPublica, with the local reporting network. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess I'll start by talking a little bit about ProPublica's local reporting network. This was an initiative that started in 2018, and it's our initiative to support and foster local journalism. We know local journalism is facing tightened resources right now, and uh, we believe that accountability reporting and investigative journalism in particular uh, needs a little bit more support in those communities. And so in um, starting in 2018, we partnered with seven newsrooms all around the country uh, and reporters to do investigative series. Um, And I started in February of 2018 as an engagement reporting fellow on the local reporting network. Um, We believe that there are a variety of tools that can help us strengthen our investigations and hold people to account, and engagement is one of those tools. Um, We really look at it as giving communities an avenue to participate in our reporting before the journalism during publication and then after the story runs. Um, We believe that with community participation and us making 
are reporting both accessible for people, but also making it accessible for people to share their stories with us, we can tell more complete investigations and uh, it, it gives us a fuller sense of what's happening and it, it, in the end, strengthens our reporting. So that's the role that I took on with the uh, seven projects last year and uh, did some focused engagement work in a few of those projects. Um, for example, last March, we launched um, a call out, which is our kind of word for a, a questionnaire, um, asking uh, for stories from first responders around the country who um, asking for stories from first responders around the country talking about mental health and asking uh, some pretty personal questions about mental health issues that they may have faced on the job and how their departments um, might have responded if they went to their departments to talk about any of those uh, issues. So we actually ended up with more than 400 responses to that call out. Um, so that's kind of one example of my work. Uh, another example of something I did last year, um, we were doing a project uh, examining the natural gas boom in West Virginia and its impact on communities and uh, other things in the state. Um, I knew I wanted to go out to West Virginia to do a little bit more reporting and engagement, but had never been to West Virginia in my life. Um, and so what uh, what I, I did was I crowdsourced the trip. I basically went to the community of West Virginian residents and um, told them to tell me where they thought I should go to really see the natural gas boom and to sort of um, experience, you know, this boom the way that they're seeing it in their communities. Um, ended up getting more than 100 responses to that ask, uh, which, you know, I kind of um, made my ask on Facebook as well as Twitter um, and, and kind of try to do my best to leave communication lines open for people to give me suggestions. Um, so ended up getting more than 100 suggestions and that fueled a five-day crowdsourced trip where I met uh, about 60 people along the way and talked to them about um, kind of their experiences with the gas boom. So engagement reporting can take a lot of different forms, but in the end we're really just trying to keep ourselves accessible and um, make sure that the community can participate in the work that we're doing. It's some pretty incredible work you've described doing over the last year. For the TomTom Tom Summit, you're in three talks, or you're a part of three talks, the first of which is Wednesday, April 10th. It's the Civic Innovation Conference where participants will dig into issues of, of data, decision-making, affordable housing, race, equity. You've, talked a, you've, you've touched on a little bit already, but I'm curious, how do you, as an engagement reporter, look at or frame these issues in terms of the local community and, and that local engagement? Um, these are really complex, nuanced issues. And um, I often find that because of the local work that I do, it's impossible for me to live <laughs> in all of the places that I'm, you know, supporting this local engagement work in, and nor is it really feasible for me to travel to 14 different places since we have actually expanded our local reporting network in 2019, and we have 14 um, newsroom partners and reporters all around the country. And so actually the approach that I've been taking and I hope to keep taking for the rest of my journalism career is sort of doing what engagement is um, really a great tool for, which is just keeping myself really open, asking for feedback, um, going to people in communities, um, not you know necessarily saying, this is the story I'm doing and these are 
the reporting questions that I have, but can you tell me more about your community? Can you tell me what you do for fun? Can you, um, you know, tell me what's important to you and what you like about your home and what makes you proud to live where you live? Because I actually think that sometimes starting with questions like that so that I can really get a sense of what the community is like from the people who live there, um, it really helps me understand kind of some of these nuanced, really complicated topics that were, um, are present in communities around the country. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, I think starting with questions, um, listening more than you talk, uh, doing all of those things, um, you know, will help us get closer to understanding more of those things. And, and that's what I, I hope to talk a little bit more about at TomTom Tom next week as well. Once again, that was Lewis Raining speaking with Bina Raghavendran. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Eliza Wilson. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Morwenna Laszlo and Jay Pun, and this is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or on our podcast home at Tej FM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week, 